Hey, welcome to the podcast by HDBU. Thanks for joining us today. We want this to inspire you, to help you grow in faith and give you the tools to thrive in life. Welcome to the podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back to the HTBU podcast. Um, I'm Ava Delaney and today's episode is on mental health awareness. So I'm joined with Hope um, Virgo, Will van der Hart and Izzy Frey. If you guys would like to introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Izzy Frey. I go to the 430 at Onslow Square and I'm in sick form. I'm Will van der Hart. I'm pastoral chaplain at Hotrinch Brompton and I'm a founding director of the Mind and Soul Foundation, exploring issues of mental, emotional health and Christian spirituality. Um, my name is Hope Virgo and I am a mental health campaigner. So I work with schools um, and corporates and then also do a lot of work with the government uh, looking predominantly at eating disorder diagnosis, but also broadly on mental health. Perfect. Um, so I suppose maybe just introduce kind of how you got into Hope, maybe how you got into your line of work and like what you do exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I started, I guess, started campaigning about three years ago. So I grew up um, and developed anorexia when I was about 12 years old and ended up being admitted to hospital when I was 17, um, spent a year in hospital recovering from having an eating disorder. And kind of since then, it's been like an ongoing state of recovery. Um, in 2016, I relapsed. And when I relapsed, I tried to get support from services, but wasn't able to, because um, with eating disorders, if you're not severely underweight, there's very little that the NHS can do for you. And so when I came through my relapse, I realized that I wanted to start talking so much more about mental health and eating disorders and to make sure that people get the support they kind of need and deserve, but also to make sure that people understand about eating disorders and the fact that you can be any size, any shape and still struggle with an eating disorder. Um, so off the back of kind of my kind of recovering through my relapse, I wrote a book um, about my whole experience and then started doing the work in schools. Um, and it kind of just went from there, really. Um, yeah, I feel very lucky that I can do what I do, actually. Mm, yeah. And Will? So I um, was involved in the London bombings in 2005. Um, was a young curate in central London and I subsequently suffered from acute anxiety breakdown. Um, and then from that point, I realized that the church was really struggling to articulate what it looked like to be a Christian and to struggle with mental health challenges. And so alongside a colleague of mine called Dr. Rob Wallows, consultant psychiatrist, we started the Mind and Soul Foundation, which now we get about four and a half million hits a year from about 26 different countries. And I think between us and Kate Middleton is another one of our team. We've written 11 books on the topic of mental emotional health, and we spend a lot of time campaigning and writing and training uh, in that kind of an area. Perfect. So it's interesting kind of both that they have sprouted from personal experiences of mental health. Um, and I suppose just more generally, like why do you guys believe, I suppose in a more Christian context, why mental health awareness is so important? Um, so personally, um, and I don't think I'm as much of an expert as Will um, in this, but personally, I think for me, um, so when I first got unwell, um, when I was in hospital, um, I was going to church um, when I was younger. And when I went into hospital, it was handled quite badly by the church that I was part of. Um, no fault of theirs. I just don't think people understood it. I'm only 29, but kind of 12, 11, 12 years ago, like people didn't get mental mm. health um, as much as they do nowadays. And people kept telling me that I wasn't a Christian enough, that I didn't have enough faith 
all of this stuff was kind of constantly being told to me. And I think from that point of view that I really wanted to start talking about it much more so in that faith environment, because I think there are a lot of people nowadays who struggle with their mental health yeah. and we have to make sure they're getting the support they need, but also mm. making sure that they don't feel weak and embarrassed or kind of that they're lacking faith because yeah. they've developed a mental health mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. What Hope's describing is being incredibly common in that outcomes for Christians with mental health issues are actually worse than outcomes are for non-Christians with mental health issues. And that's because there's so many layers of, of guilt associated yeah. and lo- lots of the sort of mythology around mental health has religious connotations. So mental health is loosely split into two separate categories, what are called neurotic disorders, which are common disorders like um, depression, um, some eating disorders, um, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorders, and then what we call seriously enduring conditions. And they're things like psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. And, and, and within their own categories, there's often been a spiritual perspective on those mm-hmm. illnesses. So Christians are often assumed that people who have serious and enduring mental health problems are affected by sort of demonic spirits and somehow the sort of devil has got into people who are, are, are struggling in that way. Uh, mm-hmm. And within the neurotic side of things that, that actually these are often personal responsibilities. So depression is laziness. Anxiety is the sin of a lack of trust in God. Um, eating disorders, lack of personal control or gratefulness for the food that you've received. Um, so there's always a spiritual spin on the disorder, which diminishes mm-hmm. the actual health issue and increases either personal culpability or spiritual culpability. And so traditionally, the church has actually stigmatized people beyond the normal stigma that people experience in society, not that there should be any stigma. And that added complexity has meant that Christians have been treatment resistant. So rather than getting psychiatric support, Christians have tried to get spiritual remedy. Now, I can tell you right now that you can't, I'm a priest, I can tell you that you can't medicate demons. So if you give a demon some olanzapine, they don't stop being a demon. Whereas if you medicate someone with, say, schizoaffective disorder, who might believe that they're God, and they might be having sort of delusional experiences and hallucinations, and they get better, I can tell you straight away that their condition is not a spiritual condition, it's a neurochemical condition. Yeah. So what, what we've seen is assumptions around mental illness have often been spiritualized unnecessarily. And a lot of the assumptions that we've made have been faulty and actually have kept people away from receiving the treatment that they need. Yeah. And I suppose like once you, if you make the assumption, it's like, what, what would be the next step even? Um, yeah. And I suppose we were having a discussion about this, about like, you know, contextual, in, like with Bible written at the time, there would have been like no understanding. And you even saying, was it 12 years ago? It wasn't a big thing. Yeah. And there's... now it just needs to be spoken about more really. Like, I think there's like this whole like persona of like what a Christian is. And lots of people that always like, oh, the Christian life must be so much easier. Like God favors you in a way, but we need to make sure that people understand that that's not the case. Like Christians can still go through a lot of hardship as well. Um, and yeah, I just think that that's And the Bible's awash with mental health problems. You know, it's not that, the mistake that people made with the Bible is that they've assumed that when it says Jesus cast out demons out of the person who's manifesting demonically, that actually Jesus was healing someone from a mental health problem. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says Jesus yeah. was casting out demons. So if you believe the Bible is telling you the truth, then you have to read the Bible 
in terms of what the Bible is saying, you have to assume that the Bible is correct when it's telling you that Jesus is actually casting out demons, not healing someone from a mental health problem. But where the Bible does show you there are mental health problems in existence, really clear. Like in 1 Kings 19, you know, Elijah's suicidal. He's saying, Lord, take my life. You know, I'm no better than my forefathers. And, you know, the, the psalmist is deeply depressed uh, in Psalm 45, Psalm 91. You know, he's, he's hugely depressed. He's struggling with depressive ideation. Saul expresses some aspects of what we would know to be some some of the more serious enduring disorders. Yeah. Um, and uh, you've got, again, suicidal ideation and suicidal completion uh, in Judas. Um, you know, the Bible is, is awash with mental health challenges. Um, but what you know about Jesus is he doesn't, he doesn't offer people condemnation. He offers people yeah, hope. Exactly. And it's like, just because the symptom might be similar, um, doesn't mean the root is the same. Exactly. Like, yeah. Um, and I think... Yeah, it's like Christ has kind of del- delivered us from, like, de- delivered us freedom from condemnation, but that doesn't mean kind of there are also earthly consequences that kind of still remain. Um, and I suppose, yeah, there's kind of, I feel like the question I had mainly was that God promises us joy, but we don't necessarily feel that every day. Um, and I, yeah, that's a definitely not an easy question, but I was wondering if any of you guys had thoughts about that. What are your thoughts, Hope? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so I think my so my relationship with God's probably a bit it's it's now much better than it's probably ever been. Um, so I became a Christian a couple of months ago, and I think for me since then I've realised that I will have ups and downs within that. But when mm-hmm. I have those down moments, like God is there with me, helping me through that. Um, but I don't. I get that he promises that we kind of should like we will get joy and everything like that. But I don't think that's the real world. And I think in the Bible, people go through ups and downs as well. And the reality is, is we are human. Like we all have mental health, whether we've got a mental illness or not, and we are going to face those ups and downs. And I think something that I've learned recently is actually it's how you deal with those ups and downs. So if you're dealing with those down days in the right way, whether it's talking about it or praying or kind of staying and trusting in God, that's the crucial thing to do. And it's I think. I saw something actually this morning on Instagram and it was um, a meme about how we don't challenge, we don't always praise God in like the really positive times, but in the negative times, we really challenge him. And I think that's interesting because quite often we do go real negative when stuff gets really hard. And actually what I've realized is, um, so at the moment I'm coming off my antidepressants and it is unbelievably difficult at times. And I could get up in the morning on those days when it's really hard and blame God for the fact that I'm struggling with it and I'm finding it hard. But instead I'm trying to keep thanking God for everything else. And it's really difficult at times. And I think you have to be honest in your faith and you have to be able to cry and be broken in front of God. But I think there is something in actually turning it around and seeing it as a positive as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's so hard to do, but there's definitely kind of the opportunity, yeah, to see it as an opportunity to put your faith in God and be so explicit in I'm completely helpless in the situation, but I'm choosing to rely on God wholly. Um, yeah. It's also interesting, you know, what, what, what Hope's saying is brilliant because she, she's choosing to like, she's choosing joy, which is a different thing to having this idea that you're joyful. You know, Christians are very like, have got very sort of binary idea of emotions. So, we have this idea in our head, like there's either happy or sad, or there's the joyful or desolate. But actually, these emotions are much more complex than they appear. What, what, what the Bible promises is is joy, not happiness. And joy effectively is an assurance of relationship. And 
it, the Bible doesn't say you're going to be happy, but it does offer you the opportunity to choose, if you like, as Hope's described, to choose a joy, which is the joy of knowing that you're held and that you're loved and that you're secure, even if you're feeling desolate. Um, James 1 uh, verse 2 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, it's an unnatural verse. Like what, 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 uh, what the writer James is encour- encouraging you to is not to choose blame or not to choose hostility, not to like stub your toe and start swearing, but have the opportunity to say in this moment, I am empowered to choose something differently. And and a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is orientated around the idea of choice. Lots of people think that their mental health Mental health makes you, in, in, you know, dangerous mate, can make you a passenger in your own illness. Like what, what, what you cannot do is pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go, I'm not depressed anymore, because that, that is another trope, which is deeply unhelpful. But, but what, what mental health does, it, it can disempower you from being a participant in your healing. And just as much as we know, you know for example, if you have a cancer diagnosis, you, you have to participate in your healing. You have to actually actively participate positively, not just receive medication defensively. If you do participate, then it's good for you. With mental health recovery, you can receive medication, but unless you participate actively in your recovery, you don't recover quite so easily. And so there's something here about the cognitive perspective of scripture, which says when you participate cognitively in joy, it transforms your reality. So if you think of you're listening to this podcast and you're having a really bad day and you sit in that negativity, that tends to continue to exacerbate the lens of negativity towards your day. Whereas when you choose gratitude, for example, we know that alters your neuroplasticity. It changes the way your brain works. And by choosing to be grateful, for example, for some simple thing, you're mood actually changes. And mental health is complex. It's not just about saying, I'm going to think positive things so I feel better about myself. But we definitely know that whilst choosing, for example, gratitude, choosing to frame our experience in joy, it does change the way we think and feel. And so actually Christian faith is good for people with mental health conditions because it helps to change the way in which we perceive our world, even when our circumstances are challenging. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think something that I've found actually in my recovery and it's, so I think for a lot of people, when you're in recovery from mental health problem, you go through these phases where you like plateau and you kind of just like trundle along. And I realized that I was in one of these places about two years ago and I call it like just functioning. So I think I function sometimes at a very high level in recovery and I've had an, I had anorexia. So with my functioning, it's more around eating the same foods all the time, like exercising the same amount, going to the same restaurants, like having exactly the same routine. And I realized I was doing this. And so every day I challenge myself with food and I make myself have something that's out of my comfort zone. And I think it's that whole thing that actually, if we're pushing ourselves, whether it's, we feel really rubbish one day and we're pushing ourselves to be grateful or pushing ourselves to be joyful. Actually, it massively helps us on a more kind of broader scale as well to just feel better at taking on life. I think sometimes it is easier to choose like the negative trail of thought. Like if you're sad, you can feel sorry for yourself. And I think that a lot of the time, like you were saying that you have to get your head out of that space and you need to think about what you do have already. And what I normally do is I either like do something that I enjoy to sort of take my focus off of what I'm feeling almost, or like I talk to someone because I think it's just important to think about what you have. Um, yeah. There's the really important balance here. I think 
with, particularly with charismatic Christian spirituality, there is a danger that we don't actually give enough vocalization to our feelings. So, so the flip side is we, we sing songs that deny our spiritual reality or our emotional reality. Now, it's so important to articulate how we actually feel. You know, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you need to know you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The key instruction, though, is not to sit down and make a camp there, but to keep on walking until yeah, you come out definitely. by the quiet waters and the green pastures. And so I, I'm all for positivity and I'm all for cognitive reframing, but so long as we're actually being authentic about our genuine struggle. And I found myself singing that um, Hillsong's uh, song, you know, you never let me down, you never let me down the other day. And I was halfway through it and I was suddenly thinking, I, I can't sing this song right now because I feel yeah. quite disappointed. It's not that I do, it's not that I was questioning whether or not God is good. I just didn't feel able to sing a song that said, you know, God doesn't let me down, but sometimes I feel that he does. And actually I got to give them, I take a pause and say, hold on a minute. I'm not going to live in, in denial of my feelings because that isn't helpful, helpful, but equally my feelings mustn't have mastery over me. And, um, you know, in Genesis four, you see that God says to Cain, you know, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. What I love about that is that it's sort of, it's, it's, Sin's crouching at his door, but he, you know, he's feeling angry. He wants to kill his brother, but he hasn't done anything yet. He's not actually sinned yet, but he can find mastery over the feeling. But but it begins by not living in denial. And unfortunately, lots of Christian mental health problems begin by living in denial to the pain of your reality and, and not being able to vocalize that because a lot of young people feel guilty. If you say, how are you doing? They're like, oh, praise Jesus. Jesus <laughs> reigns. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. On the flip side, there's kind of, yeah. And I think as well, just like from anyone who's struggling with mental health challenges, it's, I always kind of have the analogy of we're looking at the picture within one segment of a puzzle and we can only see the contents of the puzzle, but then God kind of steps back and he can see the whole whole picture and how things fit together and I suppose from our kind of worldly perspective and kind of while God can reveal these things to us it's while it's obviously not easy it's just I think so important to keep a faith because ultimately if you know I think if we believe this is the same God who created the whole of the earth I think you know we're in safe hands we're definitely in safe hands and it's not a case of this experience um, ruling us, you know, like a physical health problem. I spend time in hospital ministering to people who are really sick. It doesn't mean that because they're really sick that their faith life is somehow diminished. In yeah, fact, sometimes you have, the most, you have the most incredible interactions with people uh, spiritually who are really unwell, you know, in their physical bodies. And in the same way, um, your faith life isn't diminished by your mental health challenges. And this has, again, been a sad assumption that Christians have made, that that you need to get well mentally in order to have a really great faith life. In fact, some of the people with the greatest mental health challenges have been those who've shaped our church. Charles Spurgeon, for example, is probably the the greatest preacher of the last 200 years. Uh, He spent 20 years of his life desperately depressed, and he wrote most of his best sermons when he was depressed. William Cooper, who wrote the only hymns, actually 
attempted suicide was fished out of the bath by John Newton. And he wrote that hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Um, and he's written probably the greatest hymnal that this country has ever seen. And you got Martin Luther, father of the, Revo- of, of, of the Reformation. He, he had OCD. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was afflicted by incredible anxiety. Florence Nightingale was bipolar. Um, you know, here are just a few of the people who struggled with mental health, and they are the, the fathers and mothers of our faith. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury the other day said he's been on antidepressants for the last six years. So if, if these spiritual giants struggle with mental health, it's a demonstration to us that it doesn't diminish their ability to connect with God. Or, and it certainly doesn't diminish the fact that God is using them powerfully for the formation of, of our spiritual well-being. It's like, it's not dehabilitating, but instead kind of, it might bring a new perspective on how you view faith. And if anything, um, maybe like after, like once the kind of phase of life is maybe gone through, maybe you have a new perspective and even a stronger faith. Um, and I suppose, would you guys have any advice on people who might be struggling with some mental health issues who kind of are struggling maybe to keep faith? I think my main thing is, and this is more a general thing, is remembering that how you're feeling will pass. Um, so I know how difficult it is to get up in the morning and just feel like you just want to give up. And I think you have to sometimes hold on to that. So what I do when I have those days is I have a list of 20 things and it's things like I wash my hair or I make sure I go for a walk outside or I have a cup of tea or I journal and things mm-hmm. like that. And actually doing things like that helps you to kind of get up and keep moving with that day. And then on those days, just being kind to yourself. I think if you are struggling yourself mentally, it's so important that you find someone to talk to about it. I think that that we live in a society where yes, we talk about mental health so much more, but there are still so many people who just have no one to talk to. And I see this a lot when I go into schools, actually, like the amount of young people who just do not tell their friends how they're feeling, the amount of people who every time they have a bad day, they just kind of grin and bear it and get on with it. But it does really help if we start talking about things. And I think the more we talk about things, the better it is. And whether that's you talk to your friends or your family, or you find some support, I think, again, it's those sort of things that are just essential. Um, And then the other thing I think is just to focus on those motivational reasons for actually getting to a better place. And I know with my recovery, I went through a phase where I thought having an eating disorder was completely okay and it wasn't dangerous and it was kind of helping me to live a better life. But I had to realize that actually it was stopping me doing all of this stuff that I wanted to do. And so kind of focusing on those motivational things and actually reminding myself that if I wanted to achieve all of the stuff I want to do with my life, actually I need to get to that better space in my well-being. Yeah. And kind of relying on a really supportive community, which I think I can definitely say my church would be. You mentioned shame earlier on. Uh, And I mean, shame is such a uh, powerful emotion. It's one of our earliest emotions. And and there's no psychological remedy for shame. Brené says that the only remedy to shame is empathy. It's the only thing that, that shame can't tolerate. And that is exactly what Hope's been saying, that actually having those open conversations and being Mm. vulnerable changes our experience. But I'd say that young people, particularly Christian young people, struggle with the shame of feeling that they're struggling with their mental health. And largely they believe that they they shouldn't be feeling badly, so they shouldn't be feeling depressed. They often say, I've got nothing to feel depressed about. But again, it's the assumption that depression is somehow a product of our experiences. And... um, I've worked in an AIDS orphanage in Africa and I've, and I've, and I've, and I cannot, I cannot describe the happiness and the joy that I saw amongst the young people that I was working with. And yet I've worked with some very privileged families here in London and I've seen some absolute desolation and some 
deep and terrible depressions. Depression is not a disease that just consumes your circumstances and is a, a kind of product of them. Actually, depression is a neurochemical imbalance in the brain that afflicts people from wealthy and privileged families and very, yeah. very poor and disadvantaged families. So we need to take a more biological view of mental illness. And I would love to see parity between the way we treat physical health and mental health issues in the context of our churches. Yeah. And I think it's also so important to kind of make the distinction between like your personality and having a mental health issue and how they don't have to, like they, one doesn't kind of depend on the other. They don't and have like, to go hand in hand. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's kind of, there's not like, if you're depressed, it doesn't mean that you are not who you still are previously. Yeah, this is the Winnie the Pooh principle. If you're, <laughs> if you're Eeyore, are you really Eeyore or are you just having a, you know, a depressive episode? <laughs> and I think the, um, it, you know, what, what, what we need to hold on to the fact is that, look, whenever we're dealing with emotions, uh, particularly disordered emotions, of course, they affect our natural emotional spectrum. But behind our emotional limitation is the fullness of our emotional selves. And depression has an annoying habit of limiting our emotional connectivity because it impacts the parts of the brain which are responsible for our emotional expression. But when the depression lifts, we see the fullness of someone's character. A bit like that verse that says, now I see in part like through a mirror cloudly, clouded, but then I shall see face to face. God's always in the business of bringing a full revelation of who we are. And um, recovery from mental health is often about expressing outwardly a revelation of, of who we actually are beyond the disease or disorder that we might be struggling with. And a core part of that can be getting great therapy and taking appropriate medications, which are definitely things that Christians need to take more seriously. <laughs> In my experience, Christians are largely medication resistant. They think tablets are for everyone else, but for Christians. And um, mm. that's a really unfortunate position. Yeah. And it's like also, obviously the kind of, there's a thought that prayer can be enough, but it's also like, what if God's purpose was for this certain person to create this certain tablet? And then this is kind of the God, alternative. God is working through doctors in hospitals every exactly, day. Yeah. He's also working through psychiatrists in hospitals every mm -hmm. day and GPs every day. And, you know, the, the stigma is really interesting. Christians are also very quick to try and get off their medication as quickly as possible. Because, you know, diabetes is a, an annoying disease yeah. that lasts largely a lifetime. And, and yet people don't have great concern about taking insulin at the appropriate time, measuring their blood sugar levels. Yet when people are depressed, despite really quite scientific measurements of their mood, they do really struggle to take antidepressant medication. Why do you think that is? Just a Christian Again, perspective? It's an it's a old trope that that's, uh, your psychological ill health is not really about your neurochemistry. It's much to do with your spiritual disposition. Right. So right. there's a sense that I should be able to do this on my own. But if your brain doesn't just produce enough serotonin for you to function appropriately, having a, a support that enables it to function appropriately is, is a gift mm. from God. Yeah, exactly. uh, a lot of our assumptions around medication, particularly uh, psychological medication, is that they're happy pills, a bit like illicit drugs. So people assume that if you take an antidepressant medication, it's somehow some sort of boost, a bit like taking ecstasy. So, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll feel great, but it's just basically a licensed illegal drug. When actually SSRI medications are the most common medication group that we use to treat anxieties and depressions mm -hmm. and, and, and associated disorders, they're, they're, they're what's called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. 
And the way I describe them is like two baseball gloves. Your your, your synapses they are you know they they are your they are the things that receive your neuron, which is your electrical pulse in your brain. Now the skin of the glove is covered with a neurotransmitter that's activated when the when the ball hits the glove, but your glove just absorbs the transmitter before the ball has activated it. That's the problem in the depressed brain. When you take an SSRI medication, it stops the reuptake of yeah. the serotonin. It just blocks it, and so it stays on the glove. So when the baseball hits the glove, it's activated and you feel normal again. So all SSRI medications are doing are enabling your body to function in the way that it was already functioning before you got unwell. It's not offering you anything new. It's not offering you a sort of happy moment. And so it's no less authentic than your normal brain chemistry. So um, you said that the like depression is a, um, a chemical imbalance. Is that like, how does that come to be? Is it a genetic thing or like, what does it have to do with? We have this horrible platonic view. So Plato had this great idea 400 years before Jesus was on the earth that, uh, that you know, we were really separated in mind, body, and, 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 and uh, this mind-body separation is mm. stuck with us. So we tend to treat the mind and treat the body very differently. When Jesus was really about this great unity that we are mind, body, and spirit, and the incarnation is a beautiful picture of that, that the spirit of God dwells in the flesh uh, and that, you know, we are we are the, this fleshly presence, but actually yeah. there's a spiritual self and, and, and we're this integrated being. And so uh, when we do something in the body, it affects the mind. It, this is the, this is the great sort of dichotomy. We, we think about neurochemistry as if neurochemistry is dislocated from our emotional interactions. It's like Phineas Cage. I remember the GCSE biology, this guy, I don't know, 200 years ago, was it? He got a, a metal pole through his brain and a chunk of his brain came out basically. And before he was a really, really kind person apparently. And then afterwards he just became kind of really annoying. And yeah, it's like that kind of, it, yeah, it seems so, so silly to like separate brain, the brain from the mind. Changes your brain, yeah. change ways in which we behave right. and experiences in our environment affect the way we feel. So our neurochemistry is a direct uh, expression of our emotional interaction. So when I feel loved and secure and held, yeah. I produce uh, dopamine, which makes me feel great. When I'm, you know, breastfeeding mum, experiences lots of oxytocin that helps her to bond with her baby. So there's a maternal uh, bonding. When I'm, you know, if, you, if you're going out on a date, you'll feel a lot of adrenaline and you'll feel like a high level of adrenal response. All of that chemistry mm. is an outworking of real human interaction. And so having a depletion of serotonin is often, for many people, is a long-term outworking to stress and never negative experiences. But, but also some people have a dispositional aspect, which means that they have a greater vulnerability to a long track of negative experience, which means that their neurochemistry doesn't recover in the same way as someone else. In that way, two people can have the same experience, but one can become depressed and one might be absolutely fine. So our unique neurochemistry means that some of us have vulnerabilities that other people don't carry, but it's our interhuman and interpersonal relationship that largely inform our neurochemistry. So it's, it's, it's if you like, the end of Platonism. It's that 
our physical selves and our psychological, emotional, spiritual selves are all in interplay and mm. one affects the other dramatically. It's very yeah. interesting to think about all of your emotions being coded chemically, which yeah. effectively yeah. they are. That's true. And I think, yeah, if you think about it, as you said, in that way, you can look at a broken foot and anxiety in the same light because ultimately they're both, you know, things that can be uh, approached with kind of a similar way. Um and I don't know if there are any Bible verses you, any of you guys have specifically kind of come across or used in order to kind of get through some difficult kind of phrases. Um, I don't have any specific Bible verses, um, which is probably awful, um, <laughs> but it's more, so when I'm having a really bad patch, um, I tend to listen to a lot of music actually. Um, and I think two songs that really stick out for me and are songs that I listen to that remind me of my purpose through what I've been through, but also when I'm feeling like frustrated that maybe I haven't been completely healed and, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm having a bad day and struggling with something is, um, so the first one is scars by I am they, um, which is all about having a reason for what you've been through. Um, and Mm -hmm. it, like I said, it feels like I've got a bit of a purpose behind what I've been through and what I do now. Um, and then the other one is another in the fire, which we mm-hmm. sing quite a bit here, actually. Um, so good. Which is not dick. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> That's good one. Really we sing it too much, no, but we no, don't. No. So um, good. Yeah. And I think, again, mm-hmm. it's just having that reminder that someone is there and helps you to stay strong within that. Yeah. yeah cool. Um, I gave this um, Bible verse to my friend who was struggling um, and it was 1 Peter 5 verse 7 and it says casting the whole of your care all your anxieties all your worries all your concerns once and for all on him for he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully mm-hmm. and I I said to her like you just have to although it's a lot easier said than done you have to just trust in him and I just said that if you do want to come to church um one thing that people say a lot is to lay your burdens at the cross. Um, And obviously she didn't get that at the time because she wasn't a Christian, but we still had open conversations and then she wanted to come to church. Um, And now she's a Christian and Mm. she really does like think about that a lot. And she, that's like one that stays in her mind a lot, which. And I think that's like the whole point as well of the incarnation. There's kind of two sides, like both. So Jesus could die for our sins, but also that Jesus was human and he did go through like the same struggles that we would have done. So when God says, I understand, he actually understands because he was human. Um, Yeah. I spend a lot of my time helping to interpret Bible verses that have been misinterpreted mm. so they're a bit more um, accordant with people's <laughs> mental and emotional health issues. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a number of them that, that come to mind, but I mean, everyone always quotes Matthew 6, uh, 25 to 27. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you eat, about what you'll drink, about your body, uh, about what you'll put on. Uh, don't be anxious about... Uh, to. To, to tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient the day is its own trouble and i think what's really um interesting about this is that that jesus is actually not saying don't be anxious about today he's saying don't be anxious about tomorrow and lot you know people chop up worry verses they say don't, don't the bible says do not worry the the bible doesn't doesn't actually say do not worry the bible mm-hmm. says don't worry about uh, tomorrow for today has enough cares of its own, and and, and actually, again, that you know, it's, if we were if we actually were anxiety free, we'd die, because your limbic system is your primary system for security, mm. and it works unconsciously. 
So if, if you weren't anxious, you, you basically would get run over by a bus because you wouldn't react to its presence. And actually, the Bible is encouraging us to do things sensibly, like not catastrophize. Um, mm. You know, there's enough grace in the day and you've got a lot to deal with and Jesus is with you. And so understanding these kind of, um, these verses in New Light, the other one I get is about, you know, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, Matthew five thirty four, which again, the translation of the word perfect isn't actually perfect is be complete. It'd be an right. irony if Jesus preached the sermon on the Mount and the last minute he said, it's only for perfect people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So often, you know, we, we are condemned mm-hmm. by verses that aren't written to condemn us. Right. And yeah. It's like we almost seek them out. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. And particularly when you're feeling low uh, and vulnerable, you find reasons to exclude yourself. Lots Mm -hmm. of of people who are struggling with mental health issues feel uh, what are called pathological guilt. So they feel a high level of disassociated guilt. It doesn't reflect their real circumstances or decisions, but what it does do is it feels very real at the time. So they always look up the unforgivable sin and often contact us saying, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. Wow. And we always say, if you're worried about having committed it, you haven't committed it because actually it's, an, you know, if you're worried about it, it shows that actually your heart is in line with the presence of Jesus. So, so much of the Bible, all of the Bible is God breathed and is good for life and for living, but so often our faulty interpretation of verses, which mean actually something quite different to what we believe them to yeah. mean, yeah. can stand out and condemn us, particularly when we're struggling in our emotional mental health. I think something that, yeah, I'd like to add on that and I'd love to, I don't, I'd love to get Will's opinion on it actually as well, is I think something that I really struggled with growing up um, was that I have extremely bad body image um, and I know that I can't, even now I can't see myself the way that everybody else does. So when I look in the mirror, I get a completely different view. And something that really I really struggled with when I was going to church when I was a teenager was actually the fact that everyone always says, you're made in God's image, like yeah. you should love yourself and all of that sort of stuff. And I think for me, I then probably took those verses out of context and was like, oh, I'm a terrible person. I don't like what I look like, which means I shouldn't go to church. And then you get stuck in that negative cycle again. Um, yeah. It's like the shame coming through again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's such such a challenge because we're we're so we've been very strong on the fearfully and wonderfully made stuff, and that that that's a really challenging uh, experience for people, particularly actually for people for people with disabilities. And you could say that body dysmorphic disorder is is an aspect of of what you're describing, but what's it mean, for example, when you have a disability and yet you read that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? Because you look at you might look at yourself and believe actually that that God somehow overlooked you or that God hasn't actually made you or that he had a day when he decided to, you know, he decided to exact punishment against you. So whether you, whether your self-perception is, is more realistic or, or less realistic, depending on your perspective, whatever your experience, it's hard sometimes to reconcile, reconcile that loving, benevolent nature of God in the making. And surely everyone should be perfect and beautiful in some sort of standard of perfection and beauty. And I think actually what what the psalmist is really saying is that is that to God you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and so his his perception his perspective perception of you his perspective on you is one of total love and absolute um, cherishment and, and fullness, and. And really what he's trying to show us is that God's view of us isn't the faulty view we have of ourselves, whether we carry disability, whether we are happy in our body, whether we're unhappy in our body, that God 
has created us in the in this full spiritual psychological and physical way to be an do be a thing of delight to him yeah and, and he's yeah probably like maybe like god saying i don't want you to picture yourself in any less than i see you because it might cause you pain or because you know he's sad he's sad when we're sad he's sad with us um and so he yeah it's similar to the I delight in you verses, which I find quite hard to understand, you know, he, that God delights in his creation. And I'm sort of thinking, oh, I would have made it a bit better if that, you know, I would have made that one, <laughs> yeah, up, you yeah. know, uh, I would have fixed that one up like that, you know. Um, and that, that whole idea that actually, it was very, it, it's very constraining when we measure it as a judgment on how God has made us. But it's very mm. liberating when we imagine this is how God loves us. And that's quite a different um, mm, factor. And I say yeah. the only thing I can explain, you know, to you efficiently is the idea about of me being a parent. That I, you know, I've got three small children. They're all very different. As a father, they to me are all unique and distinctly beautiful. And I can't imagine making them in a better way. I can't imagine that <laughs> create. You know, if if I if I had an agency in their formation, I would not change a thing. All of them, and particularly my daughter now, who's about 11, is starting to, you know, ask questions of her body image. You know, how, how do you think I look? You know, I'm a bit worried about this, about myself. And all I can say to her is, darling, you are the most beautiful girl in mm -hmm. the world. And I love you. And you're so precious. And, and, and I think for me, that's probably the best way for interpreting those verses mm -hmm. is that as much as my children might question their own beauty and their body image and their own struggle as a father, I look on them and I just think, wow, you are perfect. And God looks at every single person who's listening to this podcast and thinks, wow, you are so precious. You are so perfect. I love you just as you are. Mm, yeah. And I suppose also if we think about like, God's almost made that in order for us to understand exactly how he sees us. And it's like kind of children and like, yeah, just kind of that is a mimic of kind of how God made us. Um, and I think we've spoken a lot from the perspective of people who might have um, some mental health issues, but what about from the perspective of people who might be looking to support others with them? Um, so first things I would say, which I know we've, we talked about like before the podcast anyway, yeah. was, um, that as friends, your job isn't to fix those people. Um, and I think quite often as individuals and as humans, we take on a bit of a fixing role and yeah. the person who's unwell doesn't want to be fixed. They don't want sympathy. They don't want people to feel sorry for them. But what it is, is about kind of walking alongside that person within that. Um, something that I think is really important is I am a firm believer in direct questions and direct conversations. And I know how unbelievably difficult that can be and can feel. Um, but I always think if you're worried about someone, you need to first of all, have that direct conversation. I reckon 90% of the time that individual will get really cross, will kind of shut you down. And then it's about being patient and going back to that person kind of later on in a later date mm. and then checking back in with them. Um, and I think whenever you have a conversation with someone, it is about reminding them that you're praying for them, that you're there for them and actually you'll be there when they need it as well. So they can come back to you at any point. Um, mm. And I think a big thing that I learned actually when I was unwell was quite often people would look at me and see the illness and 
I wouldn't get invited to things or if they had meals in restaurants, I wouldn't get to go. And like, partly that's because I felt like it was too much to go to stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think if you've got people that you know who struggle with food or if they've got really bad anxiety, they can't go to the cinema or can't go shopping. It's about actually doing activities that work for those people as well, because otherwise they will become more isolated and feel just completely alone as well. Mm -hmm. I suppose, yeah, if we think about how do we kind of treat someone when they have a physical well, I would argue all mental illness is physical illness, but like, how would we, if someone had an upset stomach or something, how would we respond? We wouldn't like force the medication down, but instead we'd kind of anything they wanted, we'd kind of provide and just be supportive. Um, For me, I think, I mean, one of the key points obviously is, as Hope said, people with mental health issues don't want to just talk about mental health issues all the time. (laughs) And, um, you know, if someone has got a broken leg, they don't want to talk about their broken leg very much. Um, and sometimes just how you're doing today is a really good question because it's a today question. How are you doing today? I'm doing a bit better. Oh, great. That's such good news. I'm not feeling so good. Okay. Is there anything you want to talk about? Not really. Okay. Let's do something else. Mm -hmm. So it's that, as Hope saying, sort of straight conversation with straight answers is really helpful. But I think, uh, you know, there is a real frustration that we, we, and we get so many letters from, from Christians with mental health problems. You say things like, I'm really fed up about going to church because I come into church and literally 10 people come up to me and ask if they could pray for me. (laughs) And I'm like, I've been depressed for two years. I'm really struggling uh, to really enjoy church because I think people just look at me and think I've got to be fixed to be useful. And actually like people with mental health problems, they just want to be normal. Like they want to be just in the community and they don't want to talk about depression or medication or illness or therapy every five minutes. And, And every time someone comes forward for prayer, they feel that the assumption that's made is that you must be here to pray for your mental health issue. And I just find that really strange. If someone came forward in a wheelchair, you wouldn't automatically say, right, I'm going to pray that you are able to stand up. Mm-hmm. But that's their experience. <laughs> right. And they might have come mm-hmm. forward to pray for an issue at work or for something in their family or for their cat that's sick. But they don't want to automatically be diverted down the road of, oh, this is a mental health problem. And all that does is it re-stigmatize them to believe that actually I've got to be fixed to be somehow included in community. Um, So that's, I think, a really important thing is to like do the normal stuff and to see the person, not to see the disease. So often with mental health, we've seen less so now, but certainly prior to 2012, a lot more sort of labeling. So oh, that person's a schizophrenic. Oh, that person's bipolar. Oh no. Oh, that person's depressed, a depressive. You'd never say, oh, that person's the flu or, or that person's diabetes or whatever. That person's got, that person's cancer. It but, sounds but, silly. <laughs> it sounds yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But the way in which people have been labeled around mental health has been to label the person a disease rather than to label the disease a disease. Yeah. It's like, uh, cause there's the kind of misconception that it defines your sense of self. <laughs> Yeah. I think as well, like we're so worried with mental health about saying the wrong thing quite often. So then we don't say anything at all, or we're scared of triggering someone or causing upset. And actually we shouldn't, we shouldn't be scared of that. Like if we don't know what to say to someone or we're worried about saying it, like just say something. I have people come up to me quite a bit asking about food and whether they can talk about food in front of me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with it now. And it's, I think it's better they're saying it than everyone talking about it in a corner and then coming up to me and making a decision about it. Cause I'm an, an individual and I should be able 
able to make that call myself. It's almost, yeah, objectifying, like walking around, walking on eggshells around someone. Like it's just much more helpful to be like upfront, I think. And yeah. It's so important with certain issues that we, we are able to have those unfront conversations, particularly when we, when we think about suicide, um, because young people are, are a suicide risk. Um, they're less of a suicide risk maybe than the adult population, but suicide is the is the largest killer of men uh, under 50 mm. in the UK, more yeah. than road traffic accidents, more than cancer, more than heart disease. And um, that's the, the statistics for women are half those of men. And a lot of that's because men aren't talking about suicide and suicidal ideation. And you know, more than 20% of the population have thoughts around suicide, but the key questions around planning um, whether someone's making plans and if they are, um, it's important that they're challenged. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if a friend says, oh, I was thinking about, and I thought about killing myself, then the next question should be, you know, have you made any plans? Have you ever tried to do anything in the past? Do you think mm-hmm. you might do something uh, actually, actually do something. And if you hear any positive responses to those sort of questions, then it's really, really important to make a report on that straight away. Even if your friend says, "Oh, please don't tell anyone," because you might actually be saving their life. Um, so, if you, if, if, if the important thing is to acknowledge that if someone's having thoughts and then making plans, or if they've had a history, that actually you uh, tell your youth leader or mm. you phone nine 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 if you think the risk is imminent. Uh, and you speak to a parent. So breaching trust at that point is really important. Uh, at the same point, it's really important that we don't get too animated and um, you know concerned when people say things like, oh, I had this thought, because lots of us will struggle sometimes with intrusive negative mm-hmm. thoughts about difficult things. So there's a suicide question where we have to be quite robust and quite direct. There's also the self-harm question, which lots of Christians really struggle with. Um, the UK is the self-harm capital of Europe. Manchester is the self-harm capital of the UK. And self-harm rates of amongst younger people are really, really high. What we're seeing in self-harm amongst young men is also massively increasing. So don't just think that self-harm is a is a is a female only uh, experience. Young men tell, tend to self-harm by um, accident or injuries. They tend to take unnecessary risk. And lots of that's hidden in extreme sports like skateboarding off of stairwells and um, getting into fights. Uh, so it's it's often coded around bruising and, and that kind of uh, experience. But with self-harm, there's again, there's a lot of concern that self-harm automatically leads to potential suicide risk. And often it doesn't. Self-harm is quite often a, um, a pressure valve for some young people when they're trying to connect with their genuine feelings of distress. And again, sometimes Christian shame around self-harm pushes it underground and makes it you know, difficult to challenge when actually a more accepting and curious approach to questioning a friend is actually much more helpful because when you bring self-harm into the light, it enables someone to articulate their feelings more effectively and that can really help them move on from self-harm as a coping strategy into genuine emotional conversation, which is what they're really looking for. I mean, you mentioned the word shame twice in that part, like with the whole like men not talking about it because they are 
ashamed and then the suicide thing that you said about again like just people just being ashamed and in an ideal world we would it would be amazing just to get rid of the whole shame thing yeah. but we just need to figure out how we can make people feel less ashamed I guess. Yeah. What's amazing about the Elijah story I talked about in One Kings is that is that Elijah said you know God take my life I'm done and Job says something similar he wants to die but God doesn't God doesn't, God's not offended. Like God doesn't say, how dare you? I'm going to smite you down for mm-hmm. like being so negative. God, God treats Elijah in this unique way, which is exactly the same way he treated if you went to psychiatric services in an, on an acute level. First thing he is, is tired and he needs to sleep. So God causes him to sleep, which is the first thing you need if you're in a, an acute state of mental distress. The second thing you need is food and God feeds him. And then causes him to sleep again, and then he moves him on to the next phase. If you if you were sectioned into a secure psychiatric unit, you'd often be medicated so you slept. You'd be given a KFC massive family bargain bucket, mm-hmm. so you'd eat a huge amount because often if people had a psychotic episode, they won't have eaten maybe for three or four days, and then they're caused to sleep again. And only when they've been through the cycle of eating and sleeping and eating and sleeping can they begin to do any therapeutic work to enable someone to find um, restoration. Mm-hmm. So. If, yeah. God's condemnation. God has no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've had quite negative thoughts, maybe quite bleak thoughts, and you felt those thoughts are somehow dishonoring to God or going to make God angry, you need to think again because God is full of compassion for you mm. right now. Mm. Yeah. And it's like Lamentations 3 says, for no one is cast, cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great in his is his unfailing love for he does not willingly bring affliction to grief or grief to anyone um and I find it so funny like what you said about like the sleep and the eat because it's like the two most basic physical functions of humans that so deeply affects kind of the mental state of yeah, go back to the yeah. neurochemistry argument tell me when you haven't felt grumpy because you're hungry seriously hungry and young people's yeah. metabolism is much faster than people my age group so Young people tend to be more impacted by food. And there's something that hope can associate with as well. <laughs> when you're, you know, when you, when you, you know, if you're struggling with an eating disorder, that is significant, not just because of your weight, but also because of the way in which food has neurochemical implication. Mm. And so young people often find significant fluctuations in mood. Young men struggle really with rapid metaboli- metabolization, particularly in their teenage years, which one minute lead them to be really giddy and over-enthusiastic. But the next minute can leave them very, very, very sullen and grumpy. I'd say even my nine-year-old son, I have to feed him sort of three <laughs> peanut butter sandwiches in a row to even get a word out of him when he comes home from school. So, you know, again, you go back to that mind-spirit union, the mind-body-spirit union, that actually what we eat, how our neurochemistry is affected by physicality is is a really significant wisdom for us to look after our mental health and basic Basic rhythms of eating and sleeping can afford us a significant mental well-being. We know that students are the most mental health, the highest mental health risk group. And if you think about that, that's partly because of issues around brain finalization, which is where the brain finishes its formation in men that's between 15 and 21 and women that's between 21 and 29. But that mid-group, that student group is the crux point for that. So serious and enduring disorders often appear in student, in student living. 
but also more acute neurotic disorders appear during the student living. Why? Because mum's not cooking anymore, dad's not cooking anymore, because I'm not sleeping properly, I'm going out and partying all night, because there's no sort of regulation of my life. Suddenly I'm at the helm, and because I'm living in this perpetual external chaos, my inter- my inner world also becomes chaotic. And so you can track that disorder alongside very, very basic function. Cool. Um, and I suppose I think we'll leave it there, but if we have like one final thought, maybe from each of us, um, about kind of just the relationship between Christianity and mental health and kind of the aiding um, of that. So I guess my final thought would probably be, um, and I'm obviously like quite new to the whole faith thing with regards to my own recovery and stuff. Um, but my thing would be, don't don't feel like you're doing anything wrong if you've got a mental health problem and you're not healed from it. And I think like what Will said, there's people in this world yeah. that are put there like therapists and doctors who will treat us through that. And I actually remember when I became a Christian, I went, I met up with Will actually, and I started to question whether I should be still having therapy because I was like, I'm a Christian now, like maybe I don't need therapy anymore. And I was like, oh, it's amazing. I can save all this money. And then I then was actually like, after speaking to Will, I, I was like, so I think it's really, I think it is really important. Like we shouldn't be embarrassed about how we're feeling. We should, yeah, we should kind of go with it and ride with it. And we should be really honest with God about actually how we are feeling on those good days but also on those really bad days as well mm-hmm. yeah um I think the final thing which Hope said earlier was that things do get better and like I said earlier like if you can like you have to leave your burdens at the cross and you have to just trust in God and I remember my mom used to say to me when I was like scared about like a spelling test or something like that she would just say like you don't have to be worried like you're going to be fine. Like everything does get better. Like it's just a small thing in your life. Well, in this case, it's big, but the, all the little things add up. And I just think that it will get better and you'll be okay. I think I would just say that you have value. And I think many of the mental health problems that I support people through my organization, they, they eat away at your sense of self-worth because we live in such a society of comparison, a society that really values function. And the first question that people ask is, oh, what do you do? As if what you do makes you valuable. And what we know from the gospel is the gospel says, whatever you do, whoever you are, you have value. And so I would encourage whoever's listening not to esteem themselves on the basis of their current functionability. If you're depressed and you're bed bound, or if you're suffering with serious and enduring disorder and you need to spend significant amounts of time in hospital, whether you're struggling with eating or whether you're struggling with uh, sleeping or with low mood or high mood, whatever your circumstances, you still have value. And ultimately you're precious to God and your life will be a witness. I, uh, if you'd asked me, you know, sort of 15 years ago, whether I was going to spend my life in mental health ministry, I, I would have probably run a mile. But, um, you know, the, the fact is that God redeems all things. He doesn't, he doesn't cause all things, but he redeems all things. And even if we have a lifetime of struggle, as many of the great Christian saints have done in this area, our life has value to God, value to others, and 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 we need to hold on to its value, especially in moments when we might question. Mm. And I think when battling with perception of ourselves and how God says he made us and kind of sees us, yeah, I think it's so important to understand that that's how God sees us from a father's perspective and how 
um, he loves us unconditionally. And, he, you know, if we don't see ourselves in that way, it doesn't mean that we're not made like that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope Thank you enjoyed. You. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.